Listening to the Through the Bible Studio series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Well, as we turn to Luke chapter 23, perhaps it would be helpful for us to remember the theme statement of Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 where Luke wrote and said, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And really, when you approach Luke 23 and see the cross of Christ, what you observe is a beautiful and orderly account that has been well-researched and under the inspiration of the Spirit, recorded by this man, Luke. It says in verse 1 that there were these Gentile trials that existed. Of course, we've previously seen in chapter 22 that after Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane, he was put through three illegal trials at the hands of the Jewish leadership. But then, verse 1, the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. So the Jewish religious leaders early in the morning on the day of Jesus' crucifixion bring him to Pontius Pilate. Now Pilate historically was a harsh governor over Judea and Samaria. And he often behaved very offensively towards Jewish culture and religion. So there was a hostility between Pilate and these religious leaders. But they needed to bring him, Jesus, before Pilate because they did not have the power or the authority to execute Christ. So the charge that they brought to Pilate about Jesus is that he was misleading the nation and claiming himself to be the king. They couldn't say to Pilate that he had blasphemed because Pilate would not care about their religious affairs and their religious matters. So they bring to Pilate a general charge and say, this man is refusing to follow the orders and the dictates of Rome, he is misleading our nation, forbidding us to pay taxes to Caesar, perhaps a perversion of Jesus' statement that we are to give to God what is his due. And perhaps they took that as Jesus resisting the concept of paying taxes. And this was something that was very sensitive to Pilate because in 6 AD, there was a man named Judas of Galilee who had refused to pay the poll tax and had led a large revolt. So Pilate, with that in his mind, hearing that Jesus is making himself to be a king, would be open to this charge brought to him. And Pilate, verse 3, asked Jesus or asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and to the crowds, I find no guilt 
in this man. There perhaps was a bit of sarcasm there in the voice and in the tone of Pilate in saying, are you the king of the Jews? Here you are in this humble, beaten, rejected state delivered to me by the Jews. Are you saying that you are the king of the Jews? And Jesus, without any defense, without any witnesses, without any prophecies, he just says, you have said so. Now, John, in his gospel, years later, records this conversation more fully. Jesus would say, Did you, do you say this of your own accord? He would say, my kingdom is not of this world. And he would say, I bear witness of the truth and everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. But Luke condenses it all here and gives the bottom line of it. You have said so. And Pilate in examining him said, I find no guilt in this man. He had enough discernment to see the reality of the situation. He could see that this was pure jealousy that had brought Jesus to his feet by the hands of these religious leaders. And so he perceived, it says in Mark 15, verse 10, that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. And once he determined this, what we know then is that everything that followed was an embarrassment to Pilate and the Roman justice system because at this point, he should have released Jesus. But of course, this charade went forward and ultimately Christ was crucified, even though Pilate knew that he had no guilt and they had been delivered up because of the envy of these religious leaders. But the religious leaders, of course, fought back. And it says in verse 5, but they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. So when he heard of Jesus's origin, he heard that Jesus had come from Galilee and that he was a a Galilean. When he heard this, he was satisfied and happy because he didn't really want to have anything to do with Jesus here, at least initially. And so in hearing that he had come from Galilee, he knew that that was Herod's jurisdiction. And so he tried to pawn off the responsibility over to Herod, who had jurisdiction over the region of the Galilee. Now, of course, Herod was a brutal man, and this is the Herod who was the killer of John the Baptist. And when Herod saw Jesus, verse 8, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. Notice here that Pilate longed to see Jesus, to see some sign that was done by him, but Jesus would not answer uh, this man. Now, when Herod desired this, he was wanting, of course, a lesser miracle. He wanted water to be turned into wine or for some eyes to receive sight. He wanted to see uh, something tantamount to a magic trick. He wanted Jesus to hold his interest. He wanted Jesus to entertain him. But Jesus, of course, was not there to entertain. Jesus was there to suffer, to die, to atone, and to be buried and to ultimately rise from the grave. 
grave. And of course, in Herod, we see an illustration of so many throughout the ages who have wanted and longed for a lesser work from Jesus Christ. They want Jesus to entertain them, to deal with the felt needs of life, when his cross is what really enables him to deal with them at their core. And so for us as people, we don't want to be as Herod who wanted the lesser, we want the greater. So often we want friendship with people instead of fellowship and friendship with God. We want to find people who we like rather than loving people who we wouldn't naturally like. We want activities that we enjoy rather than activities that we never thought we'd enjoy, but we can by the power of the Holy Spirit. We want riches instead of contentment. We want an expanded portfolio instead of an expanded church. We want to forgive ourselves rather than receive the grace of God. And so we want to be a people who, unlike Herod, aren't looking for the lesser miracle, but are looking for the deeper work of Jesus inside of our hearts and inside of our lives. Now, Jesus, of course, made no answer. He wouldn't respond to this man who had killed his cousin, his friend, his forerunner, John the Baptist, but he silently stood there. And the chief priest, verse 10, And the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod, verse 12, and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with one another. So we have a little note here from Luke that on this particular day, these two men who previously had been at odds with one another now become friends. They have a unified distaste for Jesus, and now they are unified in that hatred. Pilate, verse 13, then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Now, here we have a second declaration of the innocence of Jesus, declaration number two. But even in the midst of all of this, Pilate announces, I'll still punish him and I will still release him. Uh, He thought that this would be enough to satisfy the religious leaders, even though it would be very uh, unjust for for Pilate to punish and release Jesus. He thought that it would satisfy the religious leaders. A little a little politics here. Uh, thought that the, that he could sort of smooth things over with the religious leaders with a little beating for Jesus, a little bit of punishment. Uh, but then in verse 17, it goes on to say, now he was obliged to release one man to them at the festival. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Now, Matthew speaks of this as well, and Mark does also in his gospel. Uh, Apparently, they had a tradition at that time that each year at the feast, Pilate would release to them a political 
prisoner. And here, the offer that Pilate makes is to release to them a man named Barabbas. The man, verse 19, who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. So he makes this offer to the crowd. This is what Peter alluded to in Acts 3 verse 14 when he said to the crowds, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Much like Herod wanted a lesser miracle, this crowd was longing for a lesser kingdom as they cried out for Barabbas to be released and for Christ to be crucified. They were choosing a a kingdom that would hopefully rise up over Rome rather than the Son of God who will make all things new. Pilate, verse 20, addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. You you notice, of course, throughout the entirety of this, that Pilate is overly and, of course, consumed with the approval of man. And this pressure caused him to buckle and to crucify a man who he knew did not deserve crucifixion. He buckled under the pleasure to please man rather than to please God. He feared Caesar and he feared the mob. And he also feared, in an odd sense, Jesus, according to John's gospel. But his fear of man won over his fear of Christ. And he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is the place in Matthew 27, verse 24, where Pilate washed his hands and attempted to dismiss himself from any guilt in this affair of crucifying Jesus. But when the Apostles' Creed was written around 390 AD, we put a line the early church did in there that said, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. This guilt could not be escaped, but of course we understand that this was the sovereign and determined plan of God, and that we ourselves are also guilty in the process of putting Jesus upon the cross. But his love for us, so great, so strong, he saw us in our sin and longed to go to the cross to atone for our sin. And as they led him away, verse 26, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross and to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals 
were led away to be put to death with him. Now, in this movement, of course, as Jesus is taking his route to Calvary to die on his cross, they place the cross upon him, perhaps just the cross beam, the horizontal cross beam, and eventually they place it upon Simon of Cyrene. They compel him to carry Jesus's cross. Now, this was common in that day and age. A Roman soldier could see a man like Simon, an out-of-towner, and say, look, you must be obedient to me. You must carry this load. You must carry uh, this cross. And there was Simon, for some reason, visiting from northern Africa, from Cyrene, and his life is upended as he carries Jesus's crossbeam. It's possible that Simon became the father of some significant men in the early church. It says in Mark 15, verse 21, that he is the father, Simon is, of Alexander and Rufus. Now, these are names that are common in the New Testament. There is an Alexander mentioned, and there is also a Rufus mentioned, which leads some to believe that this man, Simon, at this moment, became a convert and eventually led his sons to the faith and were they were deeply impacted by the message of the gospel. Now also on this road to Calvary, we read the record of Jesus's final real public message. He looks at the daughters of Jerusalem, these women that were mourning and lamenting for him, and he turns the attention from his own suffering to their future suffering. He says, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. In other words, weep for your future. And who is he addressing? Well, he's addressing the daughters of Jerusalem. And so it seems that he's alluding to the dark days that are ahead for the city of Jerusalem. And of course, we understand from history that within a generation, Jerusalem was destroyed ultimately there in 70 AD by the Romans when they came and invaded after a long struggle with many people dying in a in brutal deaths in this war and resistance against the Roman government. And so Jesus turns his attention or their attention, I should say, to their own situation and says, dark days are to come. Now, when they came to the place that is called the skull, verse 33, there they crucified him and the criminals and the one, uh, one on his right and one on his left. Now, this place that is called the place of the skull and in uh, the Latin language is where we get our word Calvary. And the reason that it's called the place of the skull might have been because it was a hillside that looked like a skull or it had been a place so associated with death that it was given this name. It was a public place. The Romans would crucify in public places so that as you were passing by on the roadside, going in and out of a city, you would see the authority, the power, the sovereignty, the intimidation of Rome. Luke just records, as do all the gospel writers, there they crucified him. He doesn't give us the details of it because the readers that he was communicating to initially understood the, the brutal concept of crucifixion. Uh, crucifixion was a Roman invention designed to make a public 
statement. They would take a person and bend their knees, perhaps even down below, low at eye level, and they would put nails through the wrists and through the feet and causing all kinds of nerve damage. And the person with their lacerated back would be placed upon that cross. Their breathing would be restricted because of the placement of their arms and the nailing of their feet. And so painfully, they would have to pull themselves up in order to regain their breath. And slowly but surely, they would die there upon the cross as their breathing was restricted, as the birds and the insects and the pests would come uh, upon them. Death would come there on the cross in various forms, but often very slowly, sometimes over the course of a matter of many days, a person would die there upon the cross. Now, that's part of the reason that Luke just gives us the simple statement, there they crucified him, without giving us much explanation. But another part of it is because this wasn't Jesus's primary method of suffering. It seems as if the primary suffering that Jesus endured was spiritual. It says in Isaiah 53 verse 10 that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. He made an offering for guilt. And so it's very possible that the greater suffering that Jesus endured was psychological and spiritual and emotional in nature. And to just imagine an element of suffering in the spiritual psychological realm that would outweigh the physical pain of crucifixion is difficult for us to fathom and to consider. And Jesus said, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus had said in Matthew chapter 5, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And there on the cross, Jesus did that exact thing. He prayed for these people. As they crucified him, he cries out to his father, Father, forgive these people. Forgive them of the things that they're doing, the things that they're saying, the crucifixion. Forgive them for all of this. They don't know what they're doing. And they cast lots, verse 34, to divide his garments. This had been a prophecy of the Old Testament. Psalm 22, verse 18, had said, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And in a moment, a few hours from now, Jesus will actually cry out from the first line of Psalm 22 when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here he has nothing. They divide his garments among them. He has nothing. His net worth is zero. He knows poverty of the worst kind. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews, one of the criminals who were hanged, railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. You see there in that cluster of sayings from the crowd and those standing by, the soldiers and even the criminals, 
you see a constant statement, save yourself. If you're the king, save yourself. If you're the Christ, save yourself. Save yourself and save us. They wanted him to save himself. And of course, had he done so, all he would have been introducing, even if he had saved those criminals right alongside of him, would be a lesser salvation. Because Jesus did not save himself, he could save us eternally. If he had saved himself physically and them physically, he could not save them spiritually and ultimately from physical death for all of eternity. And so Jesus heard their arguments, but he stayed there upon the cross. But the other criminal, verse 40, rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, verse 43, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There was something about the way Jesus suffered that turned this man. It says in Matthew 27, verse 44, that both of the robbers reviled Jesus, just like the crowds reviled Jesus. But eventually, after hours upon the cross, one of the robbers changed his tune. He saw the way that Jesus had suffered. He heard the forgiveness in his heart, perhaps seeing the same innocence that Pilate had seen just a few hours earlier. And he says to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's speaking to Jesus who is suffering, who is dying with a crown of thorns upon his head nakedly there upon this cross. He looks at this man who is suffering and, and says to him, you have a kingdom. You have a kingdom that is coming. You're suffering. You're brutalized. You have absolutely nothing to see physically, but I believe that you are going to come into a kingdom, and when you do, will you remember me? And of course, this man experienced a deathbed conversion. He came into the kingdom with Christ. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now, verse 44, about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, when the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Mark tells us that Jesus went on to the cross at the third hour. And so here we have Jesus going to the cross. And from about noon until three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus is in a complete darkness. Darkness comes over the face of the land. So from 9 a.m. to about noon, he's speaking, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He's dealing with the crowds and he's dealing with the robbers. But here from noon to 3 p.m., it's darkness. I believe that it's here that Jesus is substituting himself for mankind. Paul said in Romans 3 verse 25 that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. He became the satisfaction for the wrath of God, the mercy seat, the blood that would satisfy God eternally. That if you believe in him, you will not perish but have everlasting life. 
the final sacrifice which completely satisfies God's demands against sinful people is Jesus. His death and his death alone and proved in his resurrection. And so there upon the cross, Jesus suffered. And after three hours, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. God making the announcement that access to him is won by the blood of Jesus. Then Jesus calling out, verse 46, with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. This is the final word of Jesus on the cross. John tells us that he said, I thirst, and then he cried out, it is finished. But here he recalls Psalm 31, verse 5, when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In other words, Father and Son are very much one. He had said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, the other gospels tell us. But here he cries out, Father, and he breathed his last. The first Adam had breathed in, but now the last Adam breathes out, making a new race and species for those who can leave Adam, the first one, and come into Christ Jesus by faith. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So the crowds were deeply impacted. The onlookers were deeply impacted at what they saw. Now, there was a man named Joseph, verse 50, from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action And he was looking for the kingdom of God. So this man, Joseph, he was a Pharisee. He was a part of the council, but he loved the Lord. He was a good and righteous man, and he had not consented to Jesus' death. This man, verse 52, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So Joseph, not in favor of Jesus' crucifixion, perhaps he was absent at the trials. Maybe he voted against the, the conviction or abstained from it. But Joseph comes, and John tells us in his gospel that he brought Nicodemus with him, another secret disciple of Christ, and they took the body with permission from Pilate of Jesus. You just imagine that beautiful act of devotion to Christ, great love for the Lord. And they prepared his body, they began to prepare his body, and they wrapped it in linen cloths. They knew they would come back after the Sabbath to complete the burial process. But Isaiah 53 verse 9 says that they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And Joseph was a man of means. And so Jesus is fulfilling that very prophecy from the book of Isaiah. They asked for the body. Pilate, actually, the other gospels tell us, checked on Jesus's death to make sure to confirm 
that Jesus had died so quickly, and he took it down in great love and prepared Jesus' body for burial. The women took note, which helps us understand how they knew the location of Jesus' tomb on that early Sunday morning when they would go to, they assumed, complete the burial process. But we know that he would rise from the dead. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateoldridge.com.